0: Um, you'll hear stories in there and you're like, oh no, that one's, yeah, that one's worse. Like, we all are like, oh no, <laughs> yours is worse. worse. Yeah, yours is worse. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'll take mine.
1: You guys get together frequently?
0: We do, yeah. Oh we have meetups God. all over the world now. We have widows everywhere, men, women. Turns out people are dying all the time and <gasps> leaving behind. <laughs> <leaving> do <behind, laughs> figure. Leaving behind loved ones. Best club you'll never want to join. Yes, we have t shirts.
1: everyone. I'm Dr. Oz and this is the Dr. Oz podcast. My next guest became a widow at just 31 years old. Less than two months before she lost her husband, her father had died of cancer. In the midst of all those tragedies, she suffered a miscarriage. When you ask Nora McInerney about her life, she won't sugarcoat her tragic reality. Despite how uncomfortable and depressing it may seem, that's actually the point. It is uncomfortable, and she wants to live with it. She's the host of the wildly successful podcast, Terrible. Thanks for asking. She's on a mission to help people get real about loss and grief and break through the isolating tr- barriers or, uh, of the tragedy that we all face in life, hers more than most, by arguing that it's okay to not be okay. But just to be honest about it. So I thank you very much for being here.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's
1: beautiful out. So if you don't mind, I'm going to just... Ask how you're doing just to get past that. And I know you make a big deal about not wanting to have small talk. You want to have big talk, Mm -hmm. which is what I want to do as well. But I do have to ask as a clinician, (laughs) that's a lot to go through. It is.
0: It is. I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well right now. So, I mean, today, just alone, I got to walk through New York City on my way here Mm -hmm. and... I used to live here a million years ago, and it's like seeing an ex-boyfriend who's, like, looks different and, like, still good, but you remember why you broke up. Um, so, I don't know, my life is, my life is good, and uh, all of these things that you mentioned are still a part of my life, even if, you know, you look at me, you probably think that's just a normal 30-ish, yeah. mid-30s Still mid-30s. Young 30s. Yeah. Young yeah. 30s. Late 20s. Right, late 20s. Who knows? Ageless <laughs> woman who just seems like she has it mostly together. Um, but all of us, like you pass all these people in New York or wherever you are, and everybody is going through something and you have no idea.
1: Yeah. What happened when you started being honest with people about the fact that it wasn't okay?
0: Oh, my gosh. My life became so much less lonely. So much less lonely. I had felt as if the only way... For me to go through, uh, go through widowhood, go through Aaron's death, my dad's death, go through all these things was to be fine, or at least present the appearance of being fine. And what you don't realize is by doing that, you are creating this sort of prison of loneliness. So when you ask somebody that you really care about, "How are you?" and they give you the same answer that they give, like the bagger at the grocery store, yeah. like they, you're not, they're not giving you a chance. They're not giving you a chance to be there. And I hadn't given anyone a chance. So while I was boiling with this sort of resentment, honestly, of the people who had loved me and had loved Aaron and just thinking like, where is everyone? I mean, I was, I was keeping them at bay by telling them that I was fine, but I also had to tell myself that I was fine. So I remember this conversation with my sister in her car where she said to me, you you make it look easy. We all think you're okay. And I looked at her and for the first time out loud said, I'm I'm not okay. I'm not okay. Why would I be okay? It's been a few months, but if you checked my Instagram feed or you saw me out and about, you'd probably think, Oh wow, Nora's husband is dead, her dad's dead, she's she lost a she lost a pregnancy. She's doing great. That new <laughs> lipstick. That, and I would tell you that, that too. Lipstick, <laughs> but, right? So I don't know telling telling my siblings that, telling my friends that I, it was like it was like opening up a whole new life I could actually experience, like my grief, which I had been really avidly trying not to do.
1: You talk about it in your book. It's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too. And there's a little rain coming, and your hands a big cloud over your head. So when your sister, obviously your family who cares mm-hmm. for you, heard this, how, how did? How were they able to help you be less lonely? Or was it more just attitudinal than you realized, you know, everyone's got pain. And mine's probably more discernibly, more definably worse than others. But, you know, I did have 25, 30 years of bliss before that tragedy hit oh, me. Oh, completely. Some people never got that either.
0: hmm Yeah, I think it did help me put things into, uh, into perspective. And I'd always been, like, very sensitive to the suffering of others. And so, in a way, I did think, to myself. And one reason why I was trying to present this facade of fineness, I do have it easy. Like, m- yes, my husband died. No, he didn't have life insurance because we were young and who needs it? Right. You know, yeah, my dad's dead. And I kind of, when my husband got sick, I was like, well, I'll still have my dad. False. Um, <laughs> like, yes, I'm 31 and I just quit my job because I couldn't figure out like how to show up to it anymore. But yeah. I'm still a 31-year-old like, middle-class white woman with a net to catch her, and most people are not. Like, most people do not have even, like, what I had, which was, like, no matter what, I was going to be okay-ish. A roof and I think over your head. I, I would still have a roof over my head, even if I lost my house. Someone else would give me a roof, so... Well,
1: why is there a stigma, as you've lived this, which is the ultimate research tool, a stigma that prevents people from talking about their grief? I, you point this out, but I... I always wonder on the show, I see people come into the audience, we have 200 people a day, and I ask them what they're doing, they say, I'm doing fine. And I'm thinking to myself that there's very little likelihood that your life is as fine as you're making it seem to me.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that no one wants to be a bummer, right? (laughs) Like no one wants to bring down uh, the energy in the room. And we also have this sort of... um, mythologized idea of what suffering is, right? Which is that it's something to be overcome and kind of like the faster, the better. Like we love stories of people who overcome something. We love comebacks. We love, we love a happy ending. Like we really, really want a happy ending. And you can get there, certainly. Like you can, you can be okay again. Um, I think the writer Anne Lamott, I don't know if you've ever read any of her writing, but she says, you're just going to have to learn to dance with the limp. So it's not as if – I hate the phrase moving on. People use that all the time. Like, oh, you're, it's so great. You've moved on. Like, you don't move on. You move forward. And all of these experiences, all of your negative experiences, all of your positive experiences, they all add up to who you are. But we want to present the best version of ourselves. And there's something about, you know, even the phrase like, oh, turning your lemons into lemonade, Um Maybe someday, but first you just have a bunch of lemons, right? you know, like, was it Chrissy Teigen who got like a delivery of like 100 l- limes from, from her grocery delivery and you, there's not, she can't make enough pies. Okay. There's just not, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. So it's hard for us to, um, I don't know, it's hard. Isn't it hard for you to watch people un- be uncomfortable?
1: Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah interestingly, part of it is because I, there are some problems I can help with and some that I can't and it makes it a big difference. So, you mentioned the great quote about, you know, learning to dance with a limp. If someone's limping down the road that I know, I ask them why they're limping, they'll tell me, you know, maybe more detail than I want to know, but usually not. You know, I bang my knee and I'll say, oh, I mean, a better story than that, pretend you were in a bar fight and then we joke about it and we move on, but maybe they have a minuscule tear and they can get it fixed and it'll be gone one day or a memory or they'll have a scar mm-hmm. and they'll dance with a limp. But if they're walking down there suicidally depressed, and I've had friends who've committed suicide that I've been with 24 hours before they killed themselves. And I had no idea. I mean, none. And I said, back, as we all do, if any of us have been through that, and probably most people listening know someone who's taken their own life. Mm-hmm. And you think, how did I miss that? First of all, you feel hurt they didn't tell you. But then you also think, how did I miss it? I mean, I was right there, and we were talking about everything else. I mean, I can that even come up? Yeah. The things you're talking about were such small things back to your complaint yeah, and not the big things yeah so i do think it's different between physical problems and emotional problems although the physical, emotional problems ultimately manifest in physical issues
0: yeah i think that um i'm not a doctor so there's very little i can do when people have like a physical problem but
1: <laughs> but, but, but yeah. there's hope you, you'll <laughs> you'll yes. you'll know that uh, yeah you'll have your meniscus surgery they'll no, take yeah. your pain out you'll be yeah. fine yeah yeah and yeah. a
0: solvable problem is wonderful and i think that there's like i feel like every time you're presented with um somebody else's discomfort you learn about the way that you process things right and so are you the kind of person who is there to compare against somebody where you know your your friend says like oh you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling, you know, I'm having a, a a hard time finding a job and you're like, well, I lost my job once. And let me tell you, like, you just want it. Like there are people who want to do that, you know? Right. And then there are people who want to like rush and fix it. There are people right. who want to be like, look, here's what you do. The fathers, okay. the
1: fathers. Right.
0: Yeah. And then, and then there are people who just will avoid you like, or who will avoid it completely. And I think by and large, most of us do try to avoid the discomfort of others. And I and I, it, it's not out of malice at all. So Aaron, Aaron died. We wrote his obituary together. The unintended consequence of that is that it was it went viral, yeah. and I got a lot of messages from a lot of people um, from all over the world. Not all of whom had dead husbands, although I do have a niche for that, but. <laughs>
1: You know, I got a, You've cornered that market.
0: Got a got a good market on, like, the hot young
1: widows. So um,
0: I I got all these messages from people who were going through something really difficult, and why were they emailing a total stranger? Yeah. Like, why were they emailing a stranger in the middle of the night? Not because they don't have anyone in their lives, but because they were afraid to make the people in their lives uncomfortable or the people in their lives had stopped asking because they didn't want to make that person uncomfortable. Like, oh, God, do I bring up your dead dad? Will I remind you of him? Exactly. You know? Yeah. And I just think at the root of it all is... This, um, this need that we all have to just be seen and heard through our difficult thing, to not be rushed through it. And that just means being okay with just being really uncomfortable for even a small amount of time, for like sitting with someone's silence, sitting with somebody's tears, and just letting them be there without trying to. You know, joke your way through it, or without trying to fix it, or without trying to compare it. It is hard. It's something that I struggle with all the time.
1: Like, uh, how, how do you break the ice on that? Let's say someone has a bad diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You just want to be there for them. So, how you doing? Well, I'm, pr- I'm prying.
0: Kind of dying here. Kind
1: of dying here. Right? As my dad told one of right. his nurses. <laughs> exactly. She
0: was like, I'm so sorry. He was like, don't be, I am. <laughs> <That's> like,
1: <laughs> right. uh, humor, as you mm-hmm. just did, right? Yeah. Which can be disarming. I mean, gallows humor works. We do it mm-hmm. in the hospital quite a bit, but it you know, has limitations. Uh, there's the reality that if I ask you, can I help you? I'm not giving you homework to tell me what to do. Right. If I offer to help you, I might be doing something you don't want. Yeah, you know, I'm here. I got some socks for you. Let's knit. I got nets. You know, I uh, got
0: so many socks. So,
1: right. so how do you how do you break the ice there? Yeah. You, yeah, I mean, I guess once you're there, you can sit silently and yeah. you know, look around awkwardly. Yeah, but but how do you get into the place where they're comfortable having you near so you actually can help if they if you see something mm-hmm. you can do?
0: Okay, so there are two sides to this. One is that if you are the person who is suffering, let's say your 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 loved one is sick, you're sick. You do have to. Part of the responsibility is yours. Part of the responsibility was ours. And when Aaron was sick, when a person is actively in grief or is actively dying, is actively sick, the, the machine around us kind of knows what to do, right? Yes. Someone rises to the occasion. Yes. Someone sets up a GoFundMe page. Someone sets up a meal train. Somebody's coordinating, like, all of the tasks that you need. But it's afterwards mm-hmm. when things get really quiet. Quiet. Because really quiet. And— if you are a person who is feeling super lonely in what you are going through and it's hard for you to pick up a phone and tell somebody I am super lonely and very sad and this is very difficult write it down write it down on Facebook and tell people like I cannot reply to your text messages because I am not sleeping and I don't know when I get them um I don't know what I need right now like I can't tell you what I need part of that is we have to as the as the suffering person as the grieving person Our job is to teach people this because even if they've been around a million widows before, they haven't been around you specifically. And there's not like some, I wish, I wish that there was some very specific protocol you could follow, but there isn't. So you do need to have like some knowledge of yourself while you're also going through this experience that you've never been through. And if you are a person who is grief adjacent, as I call it, your job is to just do what you can do don't go beyond your limits if you are not a very verbal person maybe don't try to have a conversation <laughs> about it like, maybe if, you're not the person who's going to make them feel better what if you're
1: not a nice person uh, yeah <laughs> don't come not, by <laughs> yeah if you're not a nice
0: person like send a gift card okay <laughs> everyone can do that like just send something in the mail but when people are like what can i do like my answer is like what can you do what can you do? If you're not a nice person, I bet you're, you can still rake a, a yard. Yeah. Go do that.
1: Yeah. Do something.
0: Just do something. Just do a thing. And also do it in like the quiet time. Six months later, no one's thinking about your dead husband except you. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: that's probably the best advice that I learned from a professional of mine to give my patients because uh, and their families. Because the patient would, I'm a heart surgeon, so people die sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I tell the, the, the family, you know what? Take mom home if the father had died. Yeah. Uh, but remember that, you know, the, the, the next couple of weeks for my job to get them to the hospital and he's probably not going to make it. And if he doesn't make it, the next of the rest of your life is your job. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's a marathon. It's mm-hmm. not a wind sprint. Yeah. When we come back, we'll talk about what actually happens at the moment of death with Nora. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early
0: so everyone can go home on time.
1: Help me understand the fear that people have of the grief, of and the pain of of witnessing death and actually dying itself. Yeah, which which is worse? I mean, is it, oh. was, that, was your dad or actually Aaron? How, how was that? Yeah. How was it? How was the fear for him versus the fear for you?
0: I think that Aaron and I talked about everything. Everything. How,
1: how long were you married for again?
0: we were married three years. Yeah. So he was, I mean, technically he was buried on our. His funeral was on our third wedding anniversary. But, but, yeah. So, but, and we I mean, were together for a year before that. Right, we okay, so were together for four, four years. Four years total. Okay. We were together for four years and my parents were together for 40. Oh. So right there, right? You have this automatic comparison of, um, and I will just confess this because I have told my mom since, which is that, you know, I, I did resent my mom. I was like, you had 40 years. Like buck up, you know, yeah. <laughs> like being grateful for that. And like, how dare I? Cause she lost 40 years of history and I lost 40 years of future. What's worse? I don't know. I'll never have to know because you lose what you lose and you don't get to pick it. As far as dying, I am no longer afraid to die. I just am not. I was there when Aaron died and it was like, I think it was more beautiful than having my babies be born. It's so, these words are overused, but so, like, it's so holy. It was, like, the biggest honor of my life, honestly, was to be there with him in that moment, and the minute that he died, I swear to you, I felt like I understood my space in, like, the universe and, like, the meaning of life. It was, like, everything opened up to me, and I just thought, it really is okay. Like, this is, this is, this is how it all works. Like, I get it. I get it. And then, like, two days later, I was, like, yelling someone at, a, yelling at someone in a Target parking lot. But, you know, those <laughs> windows of enlightenment are so small. And, like, you just have to take them when you get them. And people who disappeared when Aaron was really sick, they were just afraid. They were just afraid. And they missed out. They really did. Because, I don't know, you don't get to pick when you go. You don't get to pick what takes you. But, you can choose how to show up for somebody, and I think they were afraid to be sad. They were afraid that, you know, oh, I don't want to remember him this way. Like, neither do I, and I don't necessarily, when I think of him, I don't think of him sick. I don't, even though that was the majority of our marriage. I think of just like, I just think of him.
1: Take me to the time around his death, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Who was in the room with you? Just us. Just you.
0: Our house had been filled for weeks. He was on hospice for two weeks. It was just always people there. So many casseroles in Minnesota we call them hot dish, and <laughs> hot dish. so many so many hot dish. It was like I I'm gluten free. Like I can't even eat this. It's just like here's a hot plate of carbs. <laughs> As a doctor, you would not approve no. of literally any of this great food. It's bad. So like would you like something dense <laughs> and. Just cheesy, not good for your heart, <laughs> I've heard. Um, and I don't know. There were just so many people.
1: So they're are, all gone. They're all gone. They're, they're I told everyone to
0: leave. Okay. Our baby came in that day. He was almost two. He went to daycare literally at our next next door neighbor's house. So I would just sort of open the door and be like, "Go there you go. There you go, buddy. Right. And she'd wave, pick him up. And Ralph was almost two and he walked into Aaron's room or the room where Aaron was and he was wearing his little overalls and he got on his tippy toes and, you know, he's not even two. He, there's so many cords. There's so many, I mean, it's a hospital bed. It's just, and Ralph gets up and he's like rubbing Aaron's face and he's like, all gone, all done. Goodbye. He just lays down with him and we all lay down for a while. Then Ralph gets up, gets out of bed, waves goodbye goes to the front door. Like he's ready to go to daycare. Right. I walk him over. I come back and um. yeah, we laid there for hours. And then at 243, like he just breathed out. And I don't, I'm sure that you've witnessed this too, but it's like your body wants to live when it's 35. <laughs> like yes. your body wants to live even if Cancer is making its way through all of your organs and shutting you down. Like, your body wants to live. And I could feel, like, his body fighting, but I could also feel, like, just, like, the peace of his spirit and of his being. And I just knew, like, the last time he breathed out that he wouldn't breathe in again. It's like that. Really labored breathing there's like a rattle to it they call it the death rattle um actually part of that day like it's just a part of death is very monotonous and I want people to not feel bad about that I want people to not feel bad it's not as if you can carry on like a constant vigil I was reading a pamphlet about death called gone from my sight are you familiar with this highly highly distributed in hospice Mm -hmm. I don't think they've updated the designed since like 1983. There's a ship on it and it contains this poem about you know death is just a ship sailing over the horizon. You're saying goodbye to the ship but someone on the other side is just seeing it arrive. It's really beautiful but it also walks you through is this person dying? Cuz honestly you don't know. Hospice
1: yes.
0: is truly DIY death. Like you're like <laughs> they just give you a bunch of drugs. They're very sweet people. They kind of teach teach you what you need to know but I'm not a nurse. And also, I remember while Aaron was dying, I was like, I should be a nurse. And he was like, you should not be a nurse. You are like, you have no, you once threw up when they took my blood. I'm like, that was, yeah, I did.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I'll be a
0: nurse who doesn't touch blood, okay?
1: You don't touch patients.
0: Yeah, I'm just there for like the experience and also to bring some energy to the room. So I was reading it. Part of it, I was reading a pamphlet, okay? I was reading a pamphlet (laughs) being like, is this death? Do we know? I don't know. Like, he's breathing in a certain way. Sure. Uh, I don't know. Like you just can't tell.
1: DIY, just can't tell. DIY like, death. Girl. So, but the uh, you, yeah. you you touched on something that I've noticed in my own life mm-hmm. when I've seen death that there's an, a a subtlety to and it, it's it doesn't it doesn't hit doesn't hit me hard because I've seen it mm-hmm. enough perhaps but I've mm-hmm. seen death and most people haven't ever seen it but there is a magnificence to it. I won't call it beauty because it's yeah. you know it's painful, but. Uh, magnificence is such a good word but but you see it you think there's something happening and people I've had on the show who have gone through death and come back for whatever reason they always describe it in that phrase it means unimaginably beautiful which is why I'm trying to find out Mm -hmm. what it felt for you because you're so verbal yeah (laughs) <laughs> like I like to have you come by if I'm yeah. grieving, yeah, just uh, just, uh, just explain to folks what that felt like, yeah That uh, sense enlightenment or whatever the yeah. phrase is that's best
0: it is, I don't know. it is magnificence. I don't know if I'm going to do better than that unless you have a thesaurus lying around, but <laughs> it's I mean, so especially for hospice or wherever you are, okay, so. Very rarely will somebody die in like a four poster bed on like a beautiful estate surrounded by like roses and candles like no, and you will, horses right you will be you will be in some odd mix of your real life and this medical life in our case, we were in what used to be my office with a hospital bed in it with um like uh yeah, just a hospital bed and all of these weird hospital things around. Do you side note? You can cut this out. Are you, like, bothered by, like, how poorly designed, like, medical things are? Like, why Trust is the kidney crazy. pan like, like, that light pink plastic?
1: Yeah, it drives me crazy. It's so bad. And it Design, all smells bad. And the lighting is bad.
0: It's The lighting is so bad. I was just like, everything is so, like, before Aaron had his brain surgery, we're on this bed that was like an air mattress, and if you shifted, the air shifted with you. Yeah. I was like, we well, didn't this sleep is, this at all.
1: classic line is yeah. o- Oscar Wilde, the, 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 mm-hmm. the great the 19th century British writer, on his deathbed. Look at the wallpaper, which was horrible. And he said, Either this wallpaper goes or I go <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> so I mean it's so commonly talked about. Yeah. That it's become part of our literature. <laughs> but can you imagine say, either this kidney pen basing goes or I go? That's honestly sounds right. like my dad. <laughs> if it's not going, I'm going. I'm out of here. Like
0: but my dad had been diagnosed and was uh with lymphoma. And I mean, I just, it was everywhere. So just, we just say cancer. And they, he was in the ICU with pneumonia. They sent him home. They gave him like the hospice talk. And I just remember looking at him and being like, my dad's not going to do any of this. And he was, you know, talking all day, hanging out with us all day. And he died that night. And I truly think it was just, he just was good night, flipped off the lights. Uh, Adios. Yeah. In his, in his library at home, you know, Also, my parents' house was under renovation, and he was like, I never thought I'd die in a worse house than I lived (laughs) in when I was 22. (laughs) I was like, sorry, Dad. (laughs) Really. Uh, And he was so funny right up until the end. And um, so, okay, where we started, my train of thought is like really, it's going in a couple directions. We're going to bring it back to the station for you. I'm with you. Um, So the magnificence of it. So you will be in a situation that is a mix of your real life and a mix of this sort of... Uh, medical uh, infiltration into your normal life if you're in hospice. So maybe you'll be in like a hospice facility and they'll do their best to make it pretty, but you'll be in your house with like these ugly things and you'll be, you know, using some app to try to track when you're supposed to give somebody morphine and a lot of it. You don't know when somebody's on hospice. Will it be six hours? Like with my dad, will it be two weeks? Like with Aaron, will it be a year will it be We have no idea. You have no idea. So you are exhausted. And for me, I was 31. My husband was 35. I know that that is not normal. Like, I know that that's not like okay. You're not supposed to be doing that when you're 35. There are things that you have to do for somebody that, um, that are a part of your wedding vows, you know, like sickness and health and, like, until death parts you, like, really does mean something. So for me, it was like, do I want to be doing any of this stuff? Yeah, I do. Like, who but me should do this? Like, who but me should make sure that, like, that when you go, you feel as okay as possible? Like, so... They're like those moments where you're doing something that's like traumatic and horrible, and that you won't tell anybody else about. Um, but also, you think like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is who I. This is who I am, and I'm this person for you. And I hope that everybody has that. And I know that not everybody does. I think that's what's really. I think that. Um. I think that when we're afraid of death, we're mostly afraid that. We're afraid for ourselves. We're afraid that we won't be okay without this person that we love. And a little bit of us is looking at our own lives and thinking like, is what I'm doing meaningful? Will it matter? Will anyone care after I die? Will anyone do this for me? I think we see ourselves in the sick and the dying and we are forced to confront our own Really, our bodies are so weak and dumb. I don't have to tell you that. It's like so, they're so amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, honestly, your heart, you know this, crazy amazing. And also real tricky. Like Aaron's brain grew cancer. That's so stupid. Why would you do that? Stop doing that. (laughs) Um, Like like what? He had like this little heart murmur that apparently... Um, is really, really deadly. for Wolf Parkinson White, you know it? Yes, yeah, it's an arrhythmia. Okay? It's an
1: arrhythmia. Yeah. yeah,
0: and they're like, well, for some people, you know, it really bothers them. We didn't even notice you had it till you had cancer. <laughs> like, oh, there's all these, like, we're just so fragile. Like, this. there's this amazing system that keeps us alive, and then also, anything could happen, and we're really just, like, just grown-up babies.
1: Did you speak to, at all when he passed at that moment?
0: Yeah, I remember just telling him, like, I mean the same things that you tell everybody that like it's okay and like we'll be okay um, and I recounted like all of our like first dates I played this playlist that honestly looking back I knew he would hate so I kind of Gosh. feel I, I I kind of feel bad about it cuz he didn't like my taste in music but I was like these songs remind me of like falling in love with you even <laughs> though, even though you hated them and I put in some of like you know his he had a playlist too so I played his playlist
1: When we come back, more questions with Nora.
0: My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer.
1: In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community.
0: There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community.
1: Support the Asian community. Learn how at com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. What did you tell your son when he came back from daycare that yeah. day? Yeah.
0: Um, 243,
1: you said. 243. And so he three came o'clock. back at
0: like 6, maybe. I remember I texted the,
1: oh, the so yeah, don't my daycare
0: home. lady, like, might not be a great time. That's, 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 and she saw like, you know, the.
1: It's an unusual day.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she would known what was happening and. Um, Ralph came home, and I think children are amazing. And he knew, like he knew. He walked into our house, you know, with this little hat on. But it was his father was
1: still? Aaron's still in his bed, or is? He yeah, Aaron's yeah. still
0: there. And you know, and we went in there, and I said, "Papa is sick. Like Papa's body is done, but inside all of us is this light that never goes out. And so Papa's in your heart." And he's in the air and he's in the grass, all these things that I would make Aaron say to me and Ralph all the time. Like, will you be the sky? Will you be the grass? And Ralph was 22 months old and maybe six months later, we were outside and he was waving at the sky and saying, my papa's the air. Like, so some part of him, I think, just has internalized that. Now he's five. Ralph's five. A very, very smart five. And he... He knows, like, he knows, like, my dad had brain cancer, something was growing in my dad's brain, like, my dad's body died. My dad's body was really sick.
1: You were pregnant. Yeah. Uh, had you gotten pregnant on purpose? Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah, on purpose. I, we did IUI, which I'm, uh, for people who don't know, is, like, the cheap version of IVF where they just, like, put sperm in you because IVF is so expensive. We had no money. I remember going to that meeting, and they were, like, showing us the prices, and I was like, do you have anything, like, cheap?
1: Well, <laughs> but Isn't it cheaper just to... Like the old fashioned way put it in there?
0: Yeah, you can't though if you are radiated and on chemo. So Eric, yeah.
1: Oh, oh, you'd harvested the sperm.
0: Right beforehand. Because I was like, Well, don't you want to have kids? And he was like, Yeah, I want to have kids. So he he got to go once. We had barely we had like two tries to have children. It worked basically both times. And we had a very limited amount of product. <laughs> and um and yeah. So like, yeah, he was like you know, radiated. They were like, Yeah, you can't have any no funny business. And uh So, yeah, I had to do it medically. And we had Ralph, and we wanted Ralph to not be an only child. Brain cancer works like slowly until it doesn't. And when I got pregnant the second time, we could tell Aaron wasn't doing great, but he wasn't doing noticeably worse. It didn't, he got MRIs all the time, and it wasn't like it was growing again, but there was something different. Mm -hmm. So, truly, I did get pregnant thinking, that it would i don't know magic baby would keep him alive or i could just have like one other good thing and um and so i lost that baby 5 days after 5 days before my dad died and 6 weeks before aaron died and i just felt like i broke the whole world and like ruined everything even though i mean you know it's not your fault logically or medically but it feels like it cuz it happened in you so
1: you feel like Jonah, you're sort of cursed?
0: Yeah. I mean, everyone God. is though. Like, yeah. and then I look at other people and like, go, oh, no, that's bad. We have, a, we do have a group called the Hot Young Widows Club and um, you'll hear stories in there and you're like, oh no, that one's, yeah, that one's worse. Like we all are like, oh no, <laughs> yours is worse. <laughs> yeah, yours is worse. And my friend Mo, oh, like,
1: terrible. like,
0: yeah, oh no, 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 that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, I'll take mine. And I think.
1: You guys get together frequently?
0: We do. Yeah. There's we oh, have meetups goodness. all over the world now. Like we have, we have widows everywhere, men, women. Like gay, straight people. Turns out, people are dying all the time and leaving behind. <laughs> leaving behind <Go laughs> figure. Leaving behind loved ones. It's just this club <laughs> keeps growing. Um, best club you'll never want to join. Yes, we have t-shirts, so I'm pretty, pretty <laughs> into them.
1: Yeah. I want you to read this letter, if you don't mind. Yeah. It's a, it's a response you gave. Actually, you describe it. It's Okay. A, it's a... <laughs> Look,
0: part of also part of grief is anger. And uh, pettiness, if that's okay. Like, yeah. just, I think that's just a common thing. You don't want to be angry because you know it's unappealing. I was checking Aaron's email just to make sure I wasn't missing anything important, which I, I missed, like, one important thing, um, which was, like, one bill that went into collections for, like, $35. I was like, gosh. Yeah, and they <laughs> literally don't care if you call and you're like, he's dead. They're like, we'll need that $35. I'm like, well, you'll get it, but you'll also get an earful. So, um, <laughs> Aaron was a designer. He was a graphic designer. He was so talented. And he, um, in his email, one day, he got a, got an email. <laughs> he got an email. It wasn't, it's like, it was an email from, it wasn't just a bot. It was like from an actual person who was recruiting him <laughs> for, for a position and wanted to know if he was available. Like just a quick Google search, by the way, would reveal that not only had he died, but he had written an award-winning viral obituary before he died. So I was just irritated. A lot of other things were happening. And I wrote the following. Dear Francine, not her real name. Names changed to protect the innocent. (laughs) Dear Francine, thank you so much for reaching out to my husband for the senior art director position on December 8th. Aaron is more than qualified for this position and would be a great candidate for your client. Quick question. Does this position require the candidate to be alive? I only ask because he's been dead for several weeks. But I don't want that small detail to overshadow his many qualifications and take him out of consideration for the job.
1: (laughs) Did she write back?
0: No. I just probably ruined her day. She
1: probably just went home and cried. I'm sorry. I I (laughs) watched some of your stuff and uh, listened to the podcast, obviously. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I Mm -hmm. thoroughly enjoyed meeting you. And I think... My, and I, I started my career doing mechanical heart pumps. Mm-hmm. And these, you know, at the, in the beginning, they had a 50 50 chance of, of making yeah. it, the patients. So I ended up f- quite frequently having to deal with the grief, uh, not as closely linked to the patients as you obviously were to Aaron or, your, or everybody else, frankly, <laughs> your dad, your, the child you lost. But um, I, I remember frequently reminding people that they had been blessed with gifts that others hadn't had the, yeah. the, the first 35 years of their life with someone that they would never see again, but at least they had those 35 years. And there are so many stories that I ran into along those lines that when people came back to me, but the most compelling of all, I'll tell you with you to stand this podcast. There was a, a, um, a gentleman who needed bypass surgery and he came in and he was obviously despondent and it's bad news to need to know you need heart surgery, but it was more than that. And I kept on trying to get him a little bit more cheerful about the whole process, at least at least energi- energized to, to survive the darn o- operation. And finally, his wife started crying. This is really bizarre. And I'm trying to piece the pieces, put the pieces together of this, of this puzzle. And she said, our son was the, the most charming 16-year-old you'd ever imagine. He was murdered. Actually, case of mistaken identity in a parade. The gang thought he was a member of a rival gang and killed an innocent kid. And we've not been able to pull our life together. And my husband doesn't care if he's going to live or die. He ate, you know, really completely ambivalent about it. And I said, well, I can't operate on you. I can't do op- open heart surgery if you're not really into it. That just doesn't work yeah. that way, <laughs> right? You sort of have to want to get through it. And uh, and then I was sort of speechless, which is a rare for me. I didn't really know what to tell him to get him psyched up mm-hmm. for surgery. Now Do it for your wife. Yeah. Come on, get, you know, not, yeah. you know, get past it. None of that works. Mm-hmm. They'd actually already had those conversations. So I said, you know, I'll, I'll hear something somewhere that will maybe be helpful to you. I'll keep my ears open, but we're not doing anything right now. It's put mm-hmm. on hold. Same day, guy comes in. Similar age, needs the exact same operation. And uh, I, you know, I see, listen, you got to get ready for the operation. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm here, doc. I'm ready. He says, well, I know, but you, I mean, go. So I said, stop talking. You know, I don't need all the details. I don't need a pep talk. I am ready. I will survive. And I said, why are you so confident? He said, "I've got a 16-year-old child at home who's profoundly developmentally delayed. I have to change his diapers. If something happens to me, I won't be there for him." And that was my clue, because as crazy as it might sound, the first child had been with his dad for 16 years. That father, I'm a dad, had made plans with his son for the rest of his life. He had had catch with you know with them. He'd done things that they were that fathers do with sons that would bring him pleasure. And he'd never be able to do the things you do with a 25-year-old boy, but he did all the things you could do up to 16 years mm-hmm. of age. And that second father never had any of that. Yeah. Never had any of that bliss. And I told the first father that story, and it was enough to get him through the procedure. I actually operated on them a similar time. Oh, wow. And uh, I never forget the fact that we often, and you mentioned it earlier in your discussion, uh, overlook those subtleties. Mm-hmm. The, bliss, the bliss we have, and that's why I love hurts so much.
0: Yeah. Because yeah.
1: it does always end. It does. It
0: does. It's
1: been a pleasure. Nora. Thank
0: you. Thank you Nora for having McInerney.
1: me. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful job. Check out our podcast. It's brilliant and beautiful as she is. Uh, and uh, you can go to the Young Widows Club if you want to. Uh, do they, you don't take outsiders though, right? We
0: don't take, we don't take, we don't take looky-loos. We require a death certificate. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Because every once in a while you get a weirdo. All right.
1: <laughs> Terrible. Thanks for asking me of our podcast. Book's called It's Okay to Laugh. Crying's cool too.
0: Thank you.